The lawyer had written formally to Madame Rusa Moyeska. He telephoned late and early. He'd left brisk messages on the answer machine. He'd written more letters. He'd trailed Rusa around Warsaw in that battered blue 2CV, pleading his case through an open window. Undeterred by the constant refusals, he turned up cold and knocked on Rusa's door. He'd pushed lightly against the frame with Rusa shoving back from the other side. He'd flicked a business card through the closing gap, and now he was having another go, late on a Sunday afternoon. Blast him! Rusa had only looked out of the kitchen window by chance. She'd just thrown back a bison grass snifter on her doctor's orders, and was about to rinse the glass when she glimpsed that car parked on the main road three floors down which meant the lawyer must be on his way up. "'There's no stopping him,' muttered Rusa. "'He's brought a sleeping bag. He won't leave until I give in.' Without grabbing a coat or knowing where she was going, Rusa slammed the door behind her and ran down the corridor towards the fire escape that led to a courtyard of bins and slumped refuse sacks. She might be eighty, but Rusa could move. Every day she walked through the city, going nowhere in particular. The exercise kept her strong. It burned up the energy of untold memories. They were burning now, as she nipped across the yard and entered the dark passage that linked her block of flats to a neighbouring complex. She hurried close to the wall, her gaze fixed on the autumn light framed by stained concrete. A plan was forming. She'd head into town and hang around the Palace of Culture and Science. A gift from the Soviets. She liked to imagine its demolition. Stepping into the warmth and light, Rusa paused. There were children in the quadrangle. Two girls turned the rope while a third skipped, her white dress bright and clean, flying like bunting in the wind. A boy in a tracksuit, bored and brooding, sat on a step offering advice and insults. Do they know your story? came the voice. Rusa turned wearily to her side. Leaning on the wall, legs crossed, hands in his tatty jean pockets, was the lawyer. He'd kept his good shoes on. Rusa always noticed shoes and clothing. It had come with life in an orphanage, that never-forgotten world of shapeless hand-me-downs and patched elbows, and they still hadn't been polished. They need to hear what you have to say. Will you ever leave me alone? asked Rusa quietly. I doubt it. The lawyer didn't smile, but his mouth made the shape in sympathy. All the others have passed away. You're the last, Rusa. You're the only one who knows what happened in that prison. You're the only one who can bring justice to that most unjust time. Rusa closed her eyes. She listened to the whip of the rope as it struck the ground. She frowned as the girls counted triumphantly against the boy's jaded mockery. A small part of her surrendered. Sebastian Voigt, thirty-something, unshaved, and endowed with a charm as exasperating as it was unconscious, worked for the Institute of National Remembrance, 
a body formed into Alia, to preserve the memory of patriotic resistance against tyranny, and, coming to Mr. Voigt's neck of the woods, to prosecute crimes committed by officials of the former communist state. There was no statute of limitation. The guilty could not escape judgment. All that was required were witnesses. Then the law could take its course. Rosa didn't know why Sebastian rehearsed all the technical stuff. She'd already read it in the letters, heard it from a car window, and listened to the endless messages. Perhaps spelling out the government's intentions was meant to insinuate an obligation to cooperate.